0: Welcome back to University of Minnesota Extension's Nutrient Management Podcast. I'm your host, Paul McDivitt, Communications Specialist here at U of M Extension. Today on the podcast, we're talking about nitrogen management. We have three members of Extension's Nutrient Management team, Dan Kaiser, Brad Carlson, and Jeff Fetch. Can you each give us a quick introduction?
1: Uh, Brad Carlson, I do uh, water quality work. I work statewide. I'm an Extension educator. I base out of our office in regional office in Mankato.
2: Uh, this is Dan Kaiser. I'm a State Nutrient Management Specialist with U of M Extension. I'm also with the Department of Soil, Water, and Climate on the St. Paul campus.
3: I'm uh, Jeff Vetch. I'm a researcher and work out of the Southern Research and Outreach Center in Wasika. been there for about 27 years.
0: All right, so 2020 presented
3: a lot of challenges for producers with respect to performing timely field
0: operations. What were some of the takeaways with respect to nitrogen management as we headed into 2020?
1: Well, I think the it's obviously folks are aware that performing any field operation whether it's fertilizer application or anything else was uh, very challenging because of how wet it was uh, we had a quite a delayed uh, growing season and there did end up being pockets where uh, the crop never did get planted and so uh, that came off of a wet fall which uh, actually then we ended up having a you know relatively wet fall again this year primarily because of how delayed uh, harvest was, because of how delayed the growing season was. And so I guess, you know, realistically, uh, when it comes to talking about nitrogen and nutrient management, um, most of the things that uh, adversely uh, impact nitrogen management happened. It was cool, so we didn't get a lot of mineralization. It was wet, which all of our loss processes are water-based, denitrification and leaching. And then, of course, we had the additional challenges of just getting out in the field.
2: I mean, yeah, it was interesting spring. We'll kind of see what happens here. The fall, um, I didn't haven't gotten really a good read on fall 2019, how much fertilizer got applied. I know there was some fertilizer being applied. It's it's still interesting, though, seeing some cornfields out there, although I mean, a lot of that fertilizer probably would have been applied to soybean fields um, just because of the crop rotation. So just to kind of see where things are at, I... You know interesting having a few discussions with some growers and some consultants um you know talking about some regionality in some areas about you know what nitrogen rates are being applied now compared to what our MRTN rates are starting to see some really high numbers um some growers still using some of the yield goal factors and using a factor of say one for corn following soybeans which it's a lot of nitrogen um going down and um you know, we've seen instances. Uh, I know Jeff Wasika. There's been some pretty high nitrogen requirements at that. So I think we need to start having some discussions on what's our best course of action. And you know, more recently, it's back at the research updates in Morris, talking to a consultant, um, having some hearing some concerns from them too about losing fall application of VAN, And I was not completely sure in what they were talking about, but. He was talking more in relation to many of the the co-ops getting rid of anhydrous and going to urea and that's one of the things that um with these wet falls we've had it hasn't worked well um and i think we're gonna have to start getting probably ahead of that with our bmps and making some modifications sooner than later on that in terms of what recommended practices are because we need to take a a good look at that which i know is going to cause a lot of a lot of heartburn for people out there particularly retailers that have kind of gone into the realm of of trying to get out of and back out of anhydrous. But if you look at trying to prevent regulation and trying to keep some flexibility for growers, we got to be careful because it's a quick way to get regulations if we start seeing these these risky practices. And for growers too, I mean, I guess you get some of these practices you're guaranteeing repeat customers is they're going to have to come back and reapply just because of losses. Even if it's not being lost into the tile lines or into the rivers, I mean, there's still going to be some sort of economic penalty with that. So... We'll see. I'm hoping we've got a better year here in 2020, um, particularly in the spring, because I'm kind of like anybody, like any grower out there, I'm getting tired of trying to rush to get everything in. You know, we're our livelihoods not dependent on it. And that's the big thing. So it's we'll see what happens. But hopefully it'll be a better year going into this year.
3: Yeah, you know, I I wouldn't beat on a dead horse, so to speak. But but your Brad brought it up, you know, the timing has been really difficult in the fall. And it wasn't just, again, in the fall of 2019 going into 2020. In South Central Minnesota, it was such a huge problem in the fall of 2018 going into 2019. So that con- compounded all these issues that we had with spring, trying to find field days to do, to work in the spring, because so many uh, manure and fall anhydrous and And uh, other operations did not get done the previous year in the fall, so that had to carry over till spring, and that was a real problem. I think the other two things from an end management standpoint that have been key, and Dan just mentioned it, source. Um, Guys or retailers getting rid of ammonia, guys getting away from ammonia because of wet field conditions either in the fall or in the spring, going to urea. Urea in South Central Minnesota and Southwest is looking not like a substitute for ammonia in the fall in the in the spring it's an acceptable practice and the other thing as Dan mentioned is the rate um, several years in a row here where it's been wet and the demand for N or the optimum nitrogen rates creeping up there and we're seeing a lot a lot of guys putting on more N and I think the the thing is as I try to emphasize is to to start with that pre-plant N rate that's somewhere near our our recommended rates or maybe at the top of the recommended range and then have a plan B if it gets wet, you assume you're going to have to put on supplemental land, and that can be any source that, that your retailer and that you have equipment for. and the last few years, you almost need a plan C because we've had times when plan A didn't work and plan B didn't work, and we need to re- resort to uh, plan C. So it, it's been challenging, and it's really added a lot of stress level, not only as Dan mentioned, to, to researchers, but our livelihood isn't, doesn't depend on it. Um, it's even more stressful for the, the
1: retailers and certainly for the growers. Well, you know, part, part of the thing with rate also is it's frequently used to mask other management, I guess, problems is what I'll say. If, if you're not following good practices, uh, for instance, if you're doing fall urea or if we're applying when it's still too warm in the fall and so forth, uh, frequently, when we get reports of, well, I needed 200 pounds following soybeans or something like that, it's compensating for something else that could have, a decision that could have been made better. Uh, and so you're using rate to mask some other problem. You know. Now, that being said, we do, obviously, the topic du jour here is how challenging the year was. And so we do acknowledge that there definitely were things that were out of people's control. And, and as I've always said, the loss processes are water-based. So in a wet year, you're going to lose more nitrogen and you need to figure out a way to manage that. You know, that being said, you know, like one of the, ma- the ma- messages that we have when we do our Nitrogen Smart programs is understanding the risk levels of various management practices. And there are uh, management practices you can employ that are less risky and will help you get back down to a more reasonable rate. And, and so uh, particularly the closer the application is to the time the crop needs the nitrogen, the less risk there is to loss to the environment. And so, you know, I, I guess, you know, I'm not ready to say, we can't be putting on fall nitrogen. There's Obviously when we get into southeastern Minnesota, we don't apply fall nitrogen anymore. But the wetter it gets on the eastern side of the state, the more we've really got to take a look at that as far as uh, uh, whether or not that's, that's a good practice. At the very least, we ought to be managing in a pragmatic way, uh, kind of based on conditions.
2: Well, and I think just kind of thinking back, I stopped some of my side dress timing studies a little too soon I mean we haven't had any out the last two years and it had been interesting to see that in some of these areas I mean I think as Brad I think hit the nail on the head there is you know we don't really know if you know some of these areas that need a higher rate if it's simply that you know that that's the case or that if we could have changed some sort of management practice and go to maybe a split application if that would have would have helped out. I haven't been a a complete proponent for the entire state going to split applications because we don't always see the benefit but there's likely some areas out there that probably should start looking into it and um, on the retailer side I mean really what we need to be looking at probably is more options for going in right after planting and, and starting to apply fertilizer because that's the only way I can see it working if we have the falls that we had is to try to give us more time is to go into the season after planting and you know, Agritain, um or MBPT, you know, these, those urease inhibitors are very good products. We can do a lot with them with surface applications to try to stretch things out. So that's, you know, really I look at that. You, you we, we just have to see what 2020 will bring in. You know, we kind of hope that the year is better, but you, you never really know. So the, the question is really what what do we start planning for? And that's kind of the main thing is and that's one of the things I think you see these rates creep up because we're planning on what happened the previous year and sure these growers are probably getting high yields but they might be able to do that with at less cost too so it's there's some trade-offs there and I, I don't like to hear over 200 200 pounds of N being applied in corn following beans if possible But because you look at consistently yeah we've seen our, our numbers creep up where we're more on probably that I know, Jeff, 140 range, maybe 150, 150. kind of with that, um, that you know, should be probably a good starting point based on our MRTN values, um, which we've seen creep up in the last you know, three, four years. But um, we just need to be careful because everybody's really complaining that nobody wants regulation, and, but we also need to kind of also factor in that you know, if it could be bringing that on, if, if some of these practices that we're doing are risky, that we, we should be looking at things that, that may be able to at least get that rate down to a more reasonable level.
3: Yeah, in south central and southeastern Minnesota, I would agree with you, Dan. I would say if you go back uh, 10 to 15 years, we probably only get about 25% of the time that we see an advantage to split application versus all preplant. But over the last five years, I would say that that specifically last year in the studies we had, we were probably at more closer to 50% or greater
1: where we're seeing a response to split application. Yeah, I was talking to a private agronomist, a friend of ours that we work with a lot, and and he was telling me in particular, um, corn on corn, they were really seeing a big advantage to split application these last two years when it's been so wet and and challenging. And to the point where he's telling customers that have corn on corn, you should you should just simply be planning on doing split application. And I know historically long term, we've really not made that recommendation we've always found that split applying is a fine practice to do but not necessarily always found a yield advantage to that but in a situation where you got wet soils uh you know that's that's a case where uh, you likely will find an advantage
2: and the issue is always getting back out to the field and that's i know caught a few growers with plant splits so i think it's one of the things to be careful, there's really no reason, no reason to delay too long with a split. I mean, it really, I think, Jeff, what, V6, we like to have most of it, you know, on by if with a planned split. So, you know, if the weather conditions are favorable and you can roll the corn, it's time to get out there and start doing it. Because I don't think you look at some of Fabian's data, there may be a little bit of variation in terms of those early stages and what's beneficial, but it's not much. I mean, it, you you know there's bigger penalty for waiting too long, so it's just a good idea to make sure you can get out there and have the time to do it.
3: Yeah, I think the thing that I've always seen in south-central, southeastern Minnesota on medium and fine-textured, you know, drain, well-drained, poorly-drained soils, in corn-falling soybeans, you got a bigger window. I mean, you can get by with less end uh, at planting or pre-plant and then put the majority on as a side dress, um, and your window of opportunity for that, maybe, Dan, goes as far as V8 if you've got high-clearance equipment. In corn on corn, I wouldn't go that route. I would, I would think you really need to think about having at least 50% on at pre-plant, and if you want to side-dress the rest, that's fine, or even a two-thirds, one-third. And you know, we've, Fabian's got this study at Lamberton that's seen some advantages to using ESN pre-plant and then side-dressing the rest, and maybe that's a place where you could go 50-50 or two-thirds, one-third, or something like that and keep some of the costs down, and at least you'd have some protection against that earlier pre, or earlier season losses.
2: Yeah, and ESN is one of the things, too, I think we need to start taking probably a bigger look at now. I mean, that you know, obviously the company's been telling us that for a while. I mean, a lot of the data, if you look at it, um, we haven't really said there's been a big difference. But you start looking at it again, and you start seeing some instances where there are some definite advantages. I don't know if it's an advantage to go to 100% of the product, but I know in terms of a product working, that product works well. So we have some very do- good documented evidence compared to some of the other inhibitors where it's hit or miss. I mean, we know that urease inhibitors work well in terms of what they're supposed to do. It's really the nitrification inhibitors that have been more of the issue, that have been more of the question mark. And that's, I think my fear is that there's this big reliance that these nitrification inhibitors are going to be the savior of keeping fall urea around. And it's just still not looking very positive with that. So it's, we still have to kind of, I think, not use these products as, supplements for bad decision making but um, because they don't really give us that type of advantage on that but um it said certainly some good products out there but we need to ESN I think is the one that's definitely probably needs another look at.
3: Yeah, I would agree I would agree with your assessment there Dan. I think that using a nitrification inhibitor either preplant or with fall urea is like putting a band-aid on a huge gash. Um the better source then would be to use something like ESN instead of that. The money that you would spend on that inhibitor would be warranted to put on 50 or 60 percent or something or other of your N as ESN preplant, and then the rest as a side dress, and that would certainly give you some uh, pretty good protection.
2: And one of the things too that I think we don't talk too much about, which I guess I never consider too much, is the volatility issue that urea still can have even with cold temperatures, and that's if you look at some of the data, I know there's been some it's out in western U.S., they were looking at winter application of urea for winter wheat situations and looking at end loss. I think they're finding upwards of 40 50% loss just from volatility um, from surface applications without incorporation. So when you look at it, there's too many loss pathways, and with urea particularly where you get a lot of water, these, these really moist falls just it not the best option. ESN, it, it's cool enough, or the way it's, it should be cool enough where it'll – limit the release of the nitrogen out of that that polymer so i think they said the benefits there it's just the cost effectiveness of that product is is relatively expensive to buy so that's the thing kind of have to weigh against the difference so maybe it's if you want to do fall application maybe we should be looking at a portion of that as just the esn in the fall put that on then come back with a side dress application i mean there's probably some things we need to be looking at here in terms of some different options if we need to, or if growers still, we need to stick with fall application.
3: Yeah, and I think, Dan, the other point, and and this came up last week when I was touring around the state, speaking about fall application of urea, um, growers said, well, you know, in our areas, a lot of times the, the ground gets tilled in the fall, and then the fall application of urea comes after tillage, and then maybe they go back with a vertical till tool or something or other, but it's probably even not getting adequate incorporation either in some circumstances, and that's Leading to some, you know, not some volatility concerns as well.
2: Yeah, less than two inches in corporation. I mean, that's not a good thing. I've seen. Um, we'll be talking about that at some of the Smart programs. I think got some data that Fabian was sharing on that, looking at tillage depth, and you still can see some substantial losses with that. Um, so we we know even with even with tilling at appropriate depths, we can see some losses. So it's just, you know, be careful. There's a lot of things going on, and these wet conditions have caused more uncertainty in terms of some of these standard practices and even some of the new things that are being reported we need to be careful because it's there's too much of an environmental when we start looking at the, the issues that are out there and some of what's going on internally in terms of these nitrogen rule that you know it's there's a reason why it's in certain areas because of the loss potential but you don't want to have to expand that out over the whole state of minnesota just because that we're doing practices that aren't optimal for the areas
0: There's been a lot of talk about changes in climate and weather conditions. How can farmers and their advisors best evaluate what is just natural variability
3: and what might require long-term changes in management? Well, you know, I've uh, presented at the CPM short course and and I looked at uh, looking at long-term weather trends and precip across the southern half of the state and then also at Morris and also at Crookston. And what I found is If you take these uh, mean precip down into 10 year periods and look at total precip and also at growing season precipitation, at Waseca is kind of the epicenter of getting wetter. We're increasing our precip from the 1920s to the current year. We're increasing at a rate of about 0.15 inches of precipitation annually over that period, which is really significant. And more than half of that is coming during the growing season. At cities like Grand Meadow, uh, Lamberton, even Brookings, South Dakota, I looked at those. The ranges were about 0.1 inch um, per year over the same period. And when we look at 10-year intervals, and about 60% of that coming during the growing season. At Morris, it was just slightly less than that, and at Crookston, they're seeing about half that much. So, certainly for the southern half of the state and into the west or southeastern Dakotas, and I would assume that north central iowa northwestern iowa northeast is seeing similar patterns Um, it is significant and it's going to have to change people's thinking about management and you know in south central minnesota it raises a question about fall application of n and and where that's going to go in the next 10 20 years um next year at this time we will calculate our new 30-year normal at waseca we're currently at i think 36 and about a quarter inches it will go up over two inches next year, that is a huge change. This year we're at 48 inches annually. Last year we were um, in the upper 30s, low 40s. Um, We're getting two thirds or 60% of that during the growing season. Over the last five years at Waseca, only 2017 was near normal precip. All four other years were 30% or up to 50% greater than normal and that didn't just align with the total annual, it also showed up in the growing season. So that's a huge difference from what we've managed back in the 80s or certainly even in the 90s.
1: Well, so if I remember right, Jeff, uh, wasn't the average annual precip in our area, and I grew up within 10 miles of Waseca. It was 28 inches in the 70s. If I remember right, which Correct. would have been, which would have encompassed the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, and then you'd use that 30-year average in the 1970s. So that's that's 10 inches more precip uh, since you know since the late 1970s, really.
3: Yeah, and, and next year the normals will come out. We'll be in the low to mid 38-inch range, um, which is really
1: astounding compared to where we were 40 years ago. Yeah, and so when we talk about making changes you know, particularly we're talking about nitrogen here, it's, it's important to recognize our BMP regions to a greater extent are based on soil type. So we got our, our lust soils in southeastern Minnesota. We've got sandy soils in the central part of the state. And then that dividing line, though, between south-central and southwestern Minnesota really was more of a precipitation-based one. Uh, historically, there was a line in there where the amount of evapotranspiration exceeded the amount of precipitation. That meaning there's more water either evaporated or used by the plants than fell from the sky, which you know then based on that budget meant that, that water was coming out of groundwater sources uh, in, or stored water instead of, of falling from the sky. Uh, that line has moved way farther west. And so we need to be looking now at the practices we originally, uh, we're recommending in southwestern Minnesota uh, with some suspicion because the conditions on which they were based no longer exist. And then, in addition to that, I think we also have to recognize in south central Minnesota now that we're getting this amount of precipitation, while the soil types are certainly tighter uh, than southeast, and so they're not they're not uh, as conducive, say, to leaching losses. Uh, because of the, the clay loam soils, though, and the ability that the soils have to hold uh, moisture in them, they are subject to denitrification. And so we've seen some long-term averages. I know, Jeff, and a lot of the research at Wasika, particularly the drainage plots where we've been able to measure uh, what goes out of the drainage, where, for instance, we don't see a lot of difference in nitrate loss through the drain tiles, whether it's fall versus spring applied uh, anhydrous ammonia, yet we'll see... In some years, some pretty d- uh, significant yield differences between fall versus spring. Those are real. They're caused by nitrogen loss through denitrification into the atmosphere. It turns back into N2 gas, which is inert. It's not an environmental problem. But that being said, somebody bought that nitrogen. It's being lost, and then it's also impacting your bottom line further by impacting yield. And so, Farmers need to really think about that. Uh, uh, We recognize that there's a lot of stress being placed right now on uh, when we're suggesting not applying fall nitrogen anymore because of the infrastructure we've developed for the application of fertilizer. But the facts are the facts. If we're seeing major yield hits with fall application, I guess each farmer, you know, to themselves, make that decision on whether you still think that's appropriate.
3: And I think there's, you know, two options for growers to think about, and they talk these over with their retailers. And one is an option that I see more of in South Central Minnesota, and that is retailers and growers putting on less fall in. They're not putting on their full rate, whether it's for corn after beans or corn after corn. They may be putting on 60 or 70 percent in the fall and then side dressing the rest or applying the rest in the spring and trying to reduce the risk of what could potentially be lost at least somewhat. And we have some data at Wasika that says that that's that's a practice that can help. It's probably not as good obviously as applying everything in the spring, but it does it is better than applying everything in the fall. And then I think the other logical thing is if a grower farms, you know, 3000 acres, 15000 or 1500 acres of corn, consider you know, using fall in on one-third or half of your acres instead of all of them, and, and then put spring application in the others. And that's a good way to manage risk and at the same time free up a little bit of time in the spring so you're not relying
1: on putting everything on in the spring. And that, that's a point that we've made with Nitrogen Smart in the program. Uh, in One of our decision scenarios we talk about at the end is, is uh, prioritizing where, if you're going to apply some fall nitrogen or you need to apply some fall nitrogen, look at what fields are most susceptible to nitrogen loss, and then eliminate those. You know, So your, your sandier soils, move it to the spring. Your soils that are poorly drained, where you're going to pond water, while those soils are a bigger challenge for spring application, there's no point in doing a fall application if you're going to pond water for six weeks in the spring before it finally drains out and dries up. You could lose a lot of that nitrogen you applied. Uh, just simply look at doing the application uh, later in the year. You know, the, the the one advantage we've got with urea is the flexibility we have to get that applied in a hurry. So, yes, it's a little more expensive, but when we move to a urea application in the spring pre-plant, you can get a lot put on in a hurry, and so uh, we do at least have that advantage.
2: The interesting thing, I mean, recently I was talking to a group and what they brought up was, was looking at this, this question, I talked about logistics and I said, oh, that's not as much of a problem because you see some farmers now going to buy their own application equipment. And we might see that more, having more on-farm storage of their own. So because I think the the general thought, you know, one thing was brought up because then at least they don't have to wait for anybody to come out and apply it. So that's, I mean, what we may see are more, more retailers having more application equipment because I, I guess I don't see any way around this. We start looking at our issues. I mean, unless we have a source of N that's, we can completely limit the potential risk for it to be converted in the fall, um, I mean, we, we have to start talking about some of these things because there just isn't the perfect item out there that, that can help. I mean, we know some things that are, are probably better than others, but there's still risks in, involved with everything. In economics right now, you know, look at a lot of the numbers, I mean, you just really can't afford to give up bushels by some of these practices. So I think that's the main, just with farmers talking with whoever's helping them make their decision, is, you know, what practices, you know, maybe giving a bushels that we should be looking at that we need to be changing right now because it just doesn't economically make sense to do so.
0: Will these factors be part of your educational messages this winter?
1: Well, for sure, this, what we've been talking about has been embedded in Nitrogen Smart right from the, the very beginning. We talk about, and Jeff already mentioned this, that that you start with university recommendations. That should always be your starting point. And then if you're going to vary your management, be thoughtful about why you're changing it from one thing to another. And so we talk about specifically what those conditions are where you're going to flex your management, whether you've got ideal conditions. Uh, you know, we don't talk a lot about reducing uh, rates below university recommendations. I think the fact of the matter is that the research tells us that opportunities on the table. It kind of becomes a question mark of how can we reliably predict that. But I think Particularly, we understand where we're going to lose nitrogen, uh, where we've denitrified, where we might have pushed it low, lower in the soil profile. Uh, those conditions can easily be identified, as well as farmers can pretty easily assess. You know, for instance, how wet it was last fall and what the implications that was going to have on your uh, management practices. And so, uh, really, we do need to be thinking about that. When we got an extraordinarily wet fall, you know, we were time crunched anyway. Uh, I know that the, the dealers had issues with how much product they had and they had it stored and they wanted to get it out there, but uh, you, know, you, you do need to uh, be thinking also, though, about what's best management for you.
2: Yeah, storing it on the ground isn't necessarily the best option in, in some circumstances, so that's one of the, I think, the big things with it. So
3: Yeah, and I'll certainly be addressing nitrogen management at a few more meetings coming up here uh, through the winter and into early spring. Um, it's always been a, a hot topic, and it uh, re- results in job security.
0: Yeah, and uh, we've got that nitrogen uh, conference coming up February 18th. And that what's the location for that one?
1: Alexandria, Alexandria. Arrowwood
0: and Alexandria. Okay, great. All right, that about does it for the podcast this week. We'd like to thank the Agricultural Fertilizer Research and Education Council, AFRAC, for supporting the podcast.
1: Thanks for listening.